I would meet people that weren't looking for jobs just for coffee and get to know them. I would do the, you know, the Paul English trick of ask everyone who's the smartest person they've worked with and write that down someplace and then go find a way to go meet with that person. Great people tend to know and hang out with great people. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, a show about those who are in the trenches actually doing the work. I'm Patrick Campbell. And I'm Ben Hillman. And on this episode, Mike Volpe, CEO of Lola, talks about how if you don't recruit, hire, and retain well, your team will fail. People are literally the hardest part of building a company. I can't help but think you're talking about me and my sassy wit. You are maybe the hardest person to work with at the company, but no, I, I think although you know we should definitely talk about that more later. Uh, I just meant that if you would have told me back when I started ProfitWell that the hardest part of building a company would be people, I probably would at you know worst laughed in your face or at best probably just not said anything, going away thinking it would be product or marketing or some other mechanical piece of the actual business. So tell me more, like why are people hard? It's not that I am. A difficult person to work with, although I'm sure that that is also true. I, I think it's actually just really logical um, if you think about it. There's only so much you can do as an individual. You have a natural limit in time, uh, intelligence, and experience. So to build something great, you need to just have a lot of people, and then you need to align those people around the same vision and mission. And it's not to say like you can just have any people either. You need like the specific type of people that are going to complement or diversify that intelligence or experience that you have, and then you. You need to make sure that you're constantly appraising those folks to make sure they're not affecting the other folks in the business and round and round and round the cycle essentially goes. More people, more problems. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's that's the biggie song uh, that should have been written. But I think in all seriousness, you know, more people also means more growth, right? Especially as you get it right. And, and you're not focusing on, you know, headcount as a metric to optimize. But essentially, when you're building a company, your people are the company. And if you're terrible at finding great people, hiring great people, and keeping great people, then your company is going to fail. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that for sure. In, in essence, people are the product. I mean, you need to recruit the right features, make sure they're moving in the right <laughs> direction. And then ultimately, you need to make sure that you're retaining the right talent. Yeah, I just I want to go tell the team that you just referred to them as features. <laughs> I feel like that's something I would have done, not you. But got I, little I, features. I appreciate it. Everyone's got their own little things to do. Sure, sure. But they are the features, right? Yes. This is, I, I think you're right, though. And, and growth only comes from talented, highly aligned teams. And this is why I was so excited that we chatted with Mike Volpe, who put together one of the most all-star marketing teams of the past couple of decades. And that's high praise. I, I think it's definitely warranted. You know, Mike's currently the CEO of Lola.com, and they make corporate travel management just super easy. But before Lola, he was the CMO at Cyber Reason, and most Famously, he is referred to as the third founder over at HubSpot. Right, and and you know that's what he's referred to as as that unofficial title. But his his official title was CMO. He ran marketing over at HubSpot, and along with the HubSpot product team, basically ushered in this entire wave of inbound marketing, basically inventing the space. And one of the most important pillars of his success was building his team, which he's prolific at. But before we get into Mike's framework for hiring, aligning, and retaining the right talent talent, especially on a marketing team, let's learn a bit more about he got his start from an investment banker background. And listen to his context from the great market crash, which led to his company at the time going from 140 team members all the way down to 20. 
So my first job was actually in investment banking. Nice. Yeah, okay. in San Francisco for the tech industry. So I worked on a bunch of tech IPOs and M&A and learned a ton about stock markets, valuations, accounting, finance, learned Excel extremely well. But then after that, I was out there for two years during the dot-com boom. And then I just got fascinated and fell in love with all these tech companies I was working with more than the investment banking work. And then I joined a startup after that and started for like six months in like a finance role and then shifted over into marketing. It was like a 10 person company and kind of had an opportunity to do a lot of different things. And I started my marketing career by just applying all those Excel and analytical skills to acquisition marketing, like demand generation, right? And it was actually kind of a natural fit. So that's how I got started, but that was back almost 20 years ago. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Did you want to make that change or was it more like, oh, someone's got to go do this? I, you know, there were aspects of marketing that were interesting to me, especially at that time, you know, 99, it was kind of becoming a little bit more data driven because the internet was starting to become more of a thing and you could track and just measure so much more. So part of it was kind of interest. The other thing was the part of the investment banking work I liked the best was working with the companies to position them and market them to investors as part of an IPO. I mean, an IPO is actually a marketing and sales activity more than maybe people necessarily think off the top of their heads. And, and that was, and sort of understanding who the company was, why they were different, why they were special and trying to put that into the prospectus and into their, their roadshow deck was also interesting to me. So I, I think I, I, I didn't know exactly what marketing was, but I think I had this sense that some of the things I like to do were marketing. That's cool. um, but it was definitely, it was a 10 person company and I was like the most junior person there. So I was also just like a, you know, put me in coach, like just put me someplace. I think, I think maybe the woman that I worked for saw a little something in me that maybe that would be good. And then how, like, so how did you get here? Like close the gap. Yeah. So after that startup in San Francisco, it's actually a funny story. 14 months, raised 26 million bucks, grew to 140 people, then ran out of money. The market crashed and went down to 20 and then the company filed chapter 11 after that so that was like a straight up straight down kind of trajectory which in 99 the whole time? oh yeah it was fast and you know what to get that experience yeah. at 24 or whatever i was Damn. is fascinating uh, so that was a great experience after that i worked at another startup out there I moved back to boston to go to mit for business school figured maybe i should learn a little bit more about this business stuff and marketing stuff and then worked at solidworks doing marketing there and then hubspot then cyber reason then lola it's kind of amazing that he ended up in marketing, but you know, I suppose IPOs are basically just big marketing exercises. Yeah, <laughs> there's a bunch of uh, people on on the podcast here are just cringing at that, but you're definitely not wrong. Of course, you need at least some fundamentals, if not a lot of fundamentals, before you go IPO and go public. But you can't just you know hype machine your way there. Are you absolutely sure about that? No comment on some companies of the past few years, but I actually think his experience on the investment side and then going through the crash made him just a really, really great manager and recruiter. How so? Well, think about it this way. He's getting to see inside and help probably about 100 companies right smack dab in the beginning of his career, whereas most of us start off in one company and maybe see inside a few from like our friends or our family, or maybe a few more if we're working in kind of like a B2B company. He was able to then see what's bad, what's good, what's ugly, and then jumped out and went through a traumatic experience with a boom and bust company. So you're just getting so much experience if, if that's what your early career looked like. And a lot of the experience that needs to be had before you can learn the people problem in a company. 
Yeah. And, you know, if you think about it, a lot of companies today don't get that experience because we haven't had a major downturn in, I mean, almost a decade. Sure. And it's not that hardship is a requirement for learning. I, I think it just definitely accelerates the learning. And I know for me, I wouldn't be as effective as I am um, without the hardships that I witnessed and, and frankly, the number of companies that I've helped. And trust me, I have plenty of stuff to still work on, but the point, you know, still stands. Yeah, definitely. And and this helps us see what changes and what doesn't change. The the need for great people isn't going to change, but maybe the tactics you use, they, they will change. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because Mike actually has some really good insight on, on that whole point when it comes to marketing and how these shifts affect his approach to building high-performing teams. Note how he shows us the concept of everything old basically becomes new again, especially with names like account-based marketing. You know, it's interesting. There's always like new tactics, like new, you know, Instagram didn't exist whatever number of years ago and like new things. But, and I'd say maybe one large shift that's happened is is what we're doing right now like 20 years ago we could have recorded a video on like a vhs tape and then what will we do with it i guess you could buy a bunch of ads or something or you could make 500 vhs tapes and ship them to people or like what what, but the the democratization of content not only creation but also like publishing and distribution that's a gigantic shift that's completely changed. So in the in the balance of like marketing of earned, owned, and paid media, the owned media component is a hundred times more important and valuable today than it almost didn't even exist like twenty years ago. So th- that's one thing. What we're doing right now, I think, is a gigantic shift. Everything else, aside from individual tactics and in particular new channels, SMS versus email versus direct mail, whatever, aside from those things, I, I think a lot of the fundamentals are the same. You know, p- going back and reading, you know, Ogilvy on advertising and a lot of that old school stuff, it's kind of, it's coming back into fashion now. People are starting to talk about it more. That stuff is really valuable and just really deeply understanding the customer, understanding like what are the messages that resonate with them, sort of the new version of that would be like made to stick or something like that. And then just always trying to figure out new and novel ways ways to to not copy what someone's doing but kind of like take something and do it in a new way because the the new thing is always the thing that gets the better results and i but all that stuff has been true forever you know it's like the magazine ad 40 years ago that was different from every other magazine ad was the one that stood out and attracted all the attention same thing now you do something totally new and crazy on video or something else like that's the stuff that really stands out so i think most 90 percent of marketing i think and and really growth i think is actually very much the same there's only a couple things that have really changed it's kind of interesting like you think about abm right abm is like oh it's just sales 10 years ago like, yeah, that's no. how I think about it. I'm like, oh, interesting. Not even, yeah. I mean, even back in the day, yeah. like I have a little bit of experience, like the catalog, I don't know if you knew this, 30 years ago, even 30 years ago, when they shipped a catalog to your house, there might be 10 different covers to that catalog. And they would pick the cover of the catalog based on the demographics of you and your home and what they knew about you. Oh, it was just, and that's like ABM, but at scale for consumer. And so, and, that, and in print too, you're like crazy, wow. And so that type of stuff I think has been happening for a long time. I, I think a little bit of ABM is kind of like a like an overcorrection from inbound, sure. frankly, and a little bit of like a, a better, a better. It's, it's my fault, yes, it's my, we have ABM because of me, I'm sorry. But so I think that it's a little bit of overreaction to inbound and kind of like the anti-inbound. I also think it's just a better branding of what good marketing was, good data-driven marketing sure. was, you know, what, 10, 20 years ago. But again, for the right companies, ABM can be really valuable. But again, I, it's definitely one of those where what's old is new kind of a thing. Okay, 
So I'm not sure I completely agree with this assessment of ABM. We use this a lot in our sales process, and for us, it's it's been successful. But we also do quite a bit of inbound as well. And I, I think that ABM is more of a complement to inbound marketing than overcorrection from it. Okay, I, I think I get and understand where you're coming from, but I also get what Mike is saying. You know, before inbound marketing, we had this, you know, broadcasting model. And, you know, you you had some, you know, concepts of ABM, like you mentioned with the catalogs, you know, changing basically the um, the cover, right? Now, inbound was a response to cold calling and emailing to basically putting out, you know, content there that would attract people to kind of come in. So I look at, you know, ABM less as, you know, kind of an overcorrection here and more as, you know, a response strategy to, you know, going after a cold calling strategy and using it in a way that's more personalized, like an inbound strategy. So you're kind of, you're kind of looking at the outcome you're going after and and kind of revolutionizing it. And I don't know if inbound is necessarily related to ABM as much as what Mike is basically saying. Okay. So do you think that you agree that saying it's an overcorrection from inbound is just, it's a little bit of a stretch? Yeah, I think I would tend to agree. You know, I don't want to speak for Mike, but I think he'd say that the strategy tends to, like the strategy in general, like whatever you're doing tends to depend on the audience and the outcomes you're looking for, which I know is a bit of a cop-out, but you know, the CMO's job is to understand those aspects and then pick a focus. Like the worst CMOs that you'll hire are people who basically just copy and paste what they did at the last job. They need to come in, understand the market, understand the strategy, and then kind of execute on it. Sure. And that's definitely easier said than done. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. He, he had his, his advantage when he joined HubSpot because he was able to basically set the tenor and the focus from day one. And, you know, once you, once you set that focus, you have to recruit acolytes who are talented <laughs> <laughs> and can execute on that vision. Yeah, great acolyte reference there. I don't know if they would say that they are acolytes, but I, I think you're. I think you're right, and I think you and Mike are 100 right there. You know, listen to it straight from the source, though. Particularly how Mike goes into the tactics of finding the most talented people in the area, and the goes about making sure he gets them to join his team. And I love how he has a secret list. Very, very secret. It was a great opportunity because I got to be marketer number one. I was part of the, like, the initial kind of like founding team. Yeah. So it, it was one of those where it was less about taking a team and shifting their focus or something like that. We just had an opportunity to build from the ground up like the world's best marketing team doing it in completely a new way. And I think that you're right that there was sort of this confluence of because we were marketing to marketers and the concept that we were marketing was the idea that you should do marketing in a new and different way, we had to really embrace that. If we were not the world's best case study of how to do inbound marketing, we would have failed. So in some ways the bar was really high, but it also meant that there was this gigantic, really interesting opportunity to build everything in a new way. I think what early on, what I really started to learn was that once the team is beyond a few people, you, the thing that makes you the most successful is by doing a phenomenal job, as good as you can on recruiting, retention, and like team alignment. And it's all really those sort of like management, you know, HR related things yeah. that really drive the success of the team. And so I ended up really diving into all that stuff like a lot. Yeah. I Even when the team was 100 plus people and we were hiring two people a month, I interviewed 100% of the people before we hired them. So spending, and I spent a lot of time individually, like I would spend block off time on my calendar to just peruse LinkedIn every time and just see who I found out there and who was interesting to talk to. 
I would meet people that weren't looking for jobs just for coffee and get to know them. I would do the, you know, the Paul English trick of ask everyone who's the smartest person they've worked with and write that down someplace and then go find a way to go meet with that person. I would, if I was ever at conferences or events, like the smartest, you know, one or two speakers or the smartest couple people that I met there, I would write their names down and try to follow up with them and just see. And I just spent a, a lot of time sort of recruiting, sourcing, getting to know people, things like that, to just try to find not only the best talent, but also like the best sort of like undiscovered talent too, sure. and give people an environment where they could be successful over time. And is the idea that you're kind of just building that pipe, like just a lot of those people, it's just, it's not gonna lead necessarily to a hire, but a good number of them, it's like, yeah, oh, I'm looking for a job, I like Mike, I'm, let me go talk to I think there's. I think there's a few things. I think the first thing is that great people tend to know and hang out with great people. And so maybe, you know, I get introduced to you and I think you're amazing, but you're super happy where you are. Well, you probably know one or two other really good people and you're more likely to know them than other people are. Sure. And so maybe you introduce me to somebody else. So that's like one component of it. The other component of it is that recruiting is really about timing. And so while you may not be ready today, we got to know each other, spent a great amount of time. I know you down on my list of like amazing marketers. Maybe a year later, your company gets acquired or things like that. Like it, it, there's a lot of times where I can think of one woman that I hired at Cyberies and I tried to hire her twice at HubSpot didn't work out and then all of a sudden I see on you know on Twitter or something that our company got acquired I emailed her that day and was like hey what's up and she's like oh wow like we should hang out again and the, the timing was right for her then and then I hired her at cyber reason so there's been people that I've kept in touch with literally for years and then finally had an opportunity to hire them and work with them. So I think it's one of those where you really need to, t to take a long-term view of recruiting. And it is by far the most important thing you do. One of the things that the SolarWorks CEO has always used to say was hiring is the most important thing you do. And I think people know that in the way that they like write it on the wall as like some motivational poster. But if you really deeply believe that in your heart and internalize that as it really is the most important thing you do, that means that it should be a fair amount of your time. But if you do that successfully, it's because it, it's really all about the team. And if you do a great job of that, it really over time is what makes you successful as a, as a team, as a leader, and as a company. Yeah. And just super tactically, when you're meeting, so let's say you meet someone like super, super solid, like junior, high, whatever it is, in those meetings, are you really upfront with like, Hey, listen, you know, we're hiring people all the time. Like, are you happy where you are? Like, are you that It depends, it depends, no? yeah. It depends on their, them and their personality. I'll also a lot of times go in and, and not know if I want to hire them. And so I'd say the first thing, the primary thing I do is just try to have a conversation with them and just pepper them with a ton of questions. Not like interview questions. What I'm really trying to find is, is what's their superpower and what's their passion? Like what's like, you're really just trying to uncover with them. Like what's this thing, this cool thing that they're doing that's they're really proud of or they're spending a lot of time on or some new, like what's the, what's the thing that's really like, like the, the, their best face, like try to find that and really understand that and get a sense of like who they are. And are they somebody that's more on the analytical side? Are they more on the creative side? Are they more of like a solo contributor? Are they a great sort of like team player and that kind of dynamic? And, and at any time in any company in any team, you're going to need different components to kind of put together the right overall team sure. and just really trying to like deeply understand them. And there's a lot of times people that I'm like, wow, this person's amazing. I'm going to put them on my list, but they're not right for my team or my company right now. That also happens. Sure. And a lot of times I'll refer them to like somebody else that I know because that typically pays back in the future. Like I can't tell you how many people that, you know, year one, I've sent them somebody amazing that they've hired. And then two years later, they're sending me somebody, right? So I think it's, I almost have this network of, of CMOs and sales and other leaders around town that 
are we're like referring great people to each other. There's kind of this community. And a lot of them are people that I've worked with too in the past and things like that. I'm not sure there's anything novel here about Mike's process or, or his tactics. Okay, super aggressive. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if I'd go that far. Uh, I think what's novel to me is how proactive he is. Uh, and, and also, you know, like most like fundamentals, the fact that he does the fundamentals is the novel thing, ironically. You know, he's he's he knows he's going to need dozens of people here. So he curates relationships with hundreds of people, keeps tabs on them, and then makes sure he basically, you know, it's not the best verb, but harvests those relationships <laughs> when it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, one could say it's almost like network-based recruiting. Exactly. But that that proactivity and that helpfulness engenders trust with Mike. And then if he helps them, even if it's not related to a gig, they'll refer more folks to the network and over time basically create enough strings to pull to find the right folks. Mm, little puppet master, I guess. Well, yeah. not, yeah, more like, I would say more like a spider in a web, right? Like, oh, there's that person, you know, he needs to hire. Let me pull on that string now. Got it. So you're, you're reaching out to that network. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, no company is one person. So you need that volume to find the right folks with the right superpower. Yeah, and I think, you know, frankly, to be vulnerable here, I'm terrible at this. You know, it's it's partially a, a you know, not victim, but partially a situation of circumstance where, you know, because, you know, we didn't raise money and, you know, I was a crucial member of the front line and I still am in some ways – you know, we we were very reactive with our recruiting, and that's basically making recruiting so much harder. And we're not getting enough of you know the effect that he talked about, which was the whole like great people hang out with great people. So building that you know hundreds of person network in order to kind of pull those strings when they when they vibrate, if you will. Yeah, but then how else would you explain the great referrals that we have to come in from the team? Yeah, yeah, definitely. This is this is more this is more just me feeling like a terrible CEO. Okay, I won't elaborate on that. Okay. <laughs> Oh, I work with Ben every single day. So this is why I'm so insecure. Okay, well, let's let's, you know, let's get back to Mike here. Um, and, and, and really his lessons, you know, where I do feel pretty confident is in this next piece around keeping those talented people pumped and retained inside the company. Yeah. Although I think that Mike's got some, you know, some of these, these lessons are amazing, especially considering that in the early days of HubSpot, they, they hit some bumps in the road and it was something that Mike had to recognize and, and he had to kind of adapt and, and fix quickly before it became a problem that affected the wider organization. Yeah. And that's something that it's, it's kind of like a, a fire in a building, like it's just going to spread really quickly, right? And uh, let's let's listen to Mike talk about how he made some big changes to the hiring and retention process over at HubSpot, from the candidate interview questions all the way to you know inspiring that team loyalty. And I would pay careful attention to his metaphor here, which I thought was was really great. So I think I'll well I'll tell you a little story that there was there was one point in time where our retention of the marketing team was less. And it was kind of this period of like really rapid growth. And, and because of the rapid growth, we were hiring very aggressively. And what I did in terms of, I, I did a bunch of like exit interviews and really tried to talk to a lot of people like, like why, like what's really causing this. And what I started to realize was that there was a, a mismatch between what their expectation was and what the job ended up being in like a few different cases. And there were kind of different reasons for that. And then what I ended up doing was taking, because I was interviewing everyone before we hired them but I took my time with the person 
and I ended up just trusting my team to have done the right evaluation if the person was, was a good hire or a bad hire. And I ended up using my interview, which is almost at the end of the process, and sitting down with people and saying like, hey, I, you know, ask me any questions, and I would spend half my time selling them on the company and the opportunity. I'd spend the other half of my time selling them on why they shouldn't take it. And I would basically explain to them like, this is not going to be the easiest job you've had. It's going to be the hardest job you've had. You're probably used. We think you're amazing. That's why we want to hire you. You're probably the best marketer at your company right now. And everyone looks at you and like, oh, wow, this person's so smart. You're going to walk in here and no one's going to say that because you won't be. And the example I always used to use, if you're like a great swimmer on your high school team, you're probably by far the best swimmer, had no competition. But all of a sudden now you're training with the Olympic team and the person laying next to you is going to beat you. And you need to be comfortable with that. You need to want that. You need to thrive off of that because that's going to make you better. And so, and that I think got at a lot of the reasons because we ended up hiring these people that really were great, but they had trouble, I think, being successful in an environment where they were being pushed and challenged harder than they had ever been pushed or challenged before. And they were no longer like, oh, like, you know, this amazing marketer that's like this awesome person. They were, but they were now surrounded by equivalently good people. And so they didn't stand out as much. So they needed to just be more comfortable of having that humility that drive, that that they needed to be more willing to like be more self-developmental yeah. and always kind of be working to improve. And so for the right person, it was it was an awesome opportunity. Yeah. But and it ended up that that actually spent that actually improved a lot of the retention. So we sort of I think we had great retention for a while. We had kind of a period where it dipped a little bit and then we fixed it. It was mostly by just setting the right expectations between exactly what they're gonna be working on how what the standards are that we're gonna hold them toward, yeah. um, that it's gonna be like to some degree a high, not a high not a high stress environment, but a high pressure environment in terms of the standards that we hold people to. And that really helped a lot. So I think I think if you ever have a bad employee retention, I think the thing to look at is like, what are they expecting when they come in and what's the mismatch there? I'll tell you, one of the thing that I did was I would always set a note in my calendar 60 days in with all new employees to go grab them and have coffee with them and ask them specifically like, what is different today versus what you thought when you walked in the door. Oh, and, and Good and bad, probably. Yeah, good and bad. I'd ask them both and really try to drill it and get an understanding of that. And there would always, if you could get out of them that there was a big mismatch, that was something where you had to either address it quickly or understand that that's going to cause some problems. And what I noticed that once I started doing that, having done the final interview in that way that we just talked about on the front end, there was much better alignment in that 60 day. And everyone was typically at that point, once we fixed the front end, saying that like, oh no, it's better than what I thought. Like I thought these things are going to be true and they are, but these things are even more true than what I thought. Cool. And if you get to that place, like you're doing well, I think yeah. the, again, that retention, I think a lot of it starts in both uh, just before they start and kind of that first 60 days. I think that really lays the groundwork for a lot of it. Wait, hold on. Why didn't you tell me this would be the hardest job that I've ever had? There's two ways I can answer that. One crushes you and one builds you back up. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay. The truth is probably somewhere in between. Um, but no, I think that's I, I, I think that's actually a really, really good point. I love this aspect of basically talking about all the bad things. And and this is something I do. And even when you were in hiring, I did tell you like, hey, this is what's going to be terrible. Like this is the position that we're in. I mean, this is also what's going to be great. But I try to be exceptionally upfront with people in the interview process because I, I really hate that post honeymoon depression. Okay. Go go one, one layer deeper than that. What do you mean? Well, it, when... I think this happens in in most things in life, but especially with hiring. Um, and when anything is new, there's going to be this aspect of, oh, this is new and exciting. But eventually that emotion of newness wears off and you have to be here for 
the right reason. So in a hiring process, like, oh, everything's new. I'm onboarded. I'm making new friends. I'm finding new restaurants that I'm going to go to for lunch, those types of things. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, cool. That, that, that veneer like wears off, I guess. Um, and, and if I tell you upfront everything terrible, and, and then, then those things are non-negotiables for you, then we're just not a good fit and you shouldn't be here, right? So we would have situations where, you know, we weren't necessarily lying or anything. We just weren't really upfront with like, hey, like we don't have onboarding right now. We don't have like really good training. Um, that's changed, thankfully, you know, slightly. It needs to be much, much better. But if if I told you that and you were like, oh, I really need a really good training program, then you might be like, nah, ProfitWell is not for me, right? Or at least when we were, you know, 20 people. Uh, basically, it's just, you know, it's just as much an interview for us at ProfitWell or a company as it is for that candidate. And that's what's so important to be that transparent. Yeah. And, and the 60-day check-in here, it's, it's what I think is perfect in perfecting that conversation and those expectations. There's, there's this whole expectation setting process from interview to the, you know, first 30, first 60 days. It's, it's also really cool because they're, you know, so many companies, they don't do this. Right. And most are, you know, oh, let's both, you know, embellish our experience to look really good to one another, right? And the sooner you get real with a company from a candidate perspective and from a, a, a company perspective, it, it just gets better. And that's where that radical transparency is, is really fostering that best experience. Sure. And I think that the bigger issue here is alignment. All of this is great when you're 10 people, but what about when you're 100 when you're a thousand. Totally. And, and I think there's always going to be bugs in the system, unfortunately, right? But you can't, or, or I guess you can avoid those by focusing on alignment beyond just having meetings with everyone. Yeah. And, and he did speak about that. You know, listen, listen closely to Mike's take on getting folks aligned and also pay close attention to the two layers that he refers to that have to go together to achieve transparency and alignment. I think there's two layers to alignment. I think one is around just transparency and information sharing, because sometimes people get misaligned because they have a different view of the world because they have different information. And to your point, at eight or 10 people, transparency is you're all sitting in the same room and you overhear every single conversation that's happening because you can't help it, right? As you start to get bigger and open other offices and things like that, in order to embrace that, embrace that transparency of information, you need to change some of the processes. So. You know, we use an internal wiki and we just tried to post as much information there as possible and really share with everyone as much information as possible. That's something that we've embraced a lot at Lola.com too since, I, since I've started there. And I think that that's helped a lot. So just you need to figure out for your company as you grow and scale, how do you continue to arm every single person in the company with as much information as the CEO has? And if you're doing that, at least if there's misalignment, it's not because they're working off of a different you know, context, right? So that's, I think, the first level. I think the second level is that as you grow, sometimes even the CEO, sometimes even deliberately, you'll have one team marching toward this set of goals and another team marching toward a different set of goals. And that's much harder. And that's really just about making sure that you've got clear alignment on like what exactly the goals are marching toward. How does every single team sort of march in that same direction? And even like and as you start to grow, there might even be times where deliberately you're like, no, no, I actually want this team to go figure out a freemium model over here and they're going to have different incentives. And in those cases, in some ways, you almost want to wall them off and keep them separate from the company because you're right, because a lot of the internal strife can sort of come. And as, as you kind of cross the like few hundred employee mark 
and you start to get into maybe different lines of business or international versus US or things like that, I think then that misalignment, like everyone can be working off of the same context and the same information, but you're gonna end up as you grow just from the nature of scale, having teams that are sort of misaligned. And I think there, that's almost like an innovator's dilemma kind of thing. And I think the typical advice there is kind of like wall that off and try to keep it a little bit separate. But that, that one's particularly hard. The working off the same context and information one, I think is, is more fixable if you do the right things culturally. People, people, people. That's right. People rule everything around me. That should have been the Wu-Tang song. Wu-Tang! Wu-Tang right? Wu <laughs> Wu Financial, right? No. Okay. We're ruining this. Are we changing our name, the company name to Wu-Tang Financial? No, the Twitter handle's already taken. But it's definitely all about the people. Essentially, once you reach a certain scale, the product obviously is important. The marketing is obviously important. You know, all the obvious things are important, but the company becomes the product. And as you so eloquently put, the features are your people. Yeah. And if you approach the company as a product through recruiting the right features, aligning those features to move in the right direction, and then ultimately retain the right talent to keep the product moving, you'll... That's, that's when you're going to bear the outcomes that you're looking for, especially in stages of hyper growth. Exactly. People are the product and growth will only come from talented, highly aligned teams. Protect the Hustle is produced by Dan Callahan and Ben Hillman. With help from Steve Sarasoli and Alyssa Chan. Written by Mary Matten. Share this episode on Twitter with the hashtag protect it, and we'll hook you up with some official PTH and ProfitWell swag. 